Hey everybody, welcome to Verdict Guys. I'm Eric. And I'm Sean. And we're the Verdict Guys. Checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three. Hellman, Sandblazer, Preacher. <laughs> Come up with a way to mess with Preacher in time. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I, I did my best. <laughs> Alright, this comic is not one of those, but it does feature John Constantine Hellblazer. Right, today we're looking at the limited series The Horrorist, which was released by Vertigo Comics in December 1995 and January 1996. Just two issues. This wow, is... that makes this way out of place, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think that's why this exists as a limited series. It's because Jamie Delano wanted to do a Hellblazer story after he had left the book. Oh, okay. I, I suspect is the reason for this thing to exist. Well, as you said, written by Jamie Delano, the interior art and the covers are all by David Lloyd. Yeah, now, David Lloyd is probably going to be a familiar name to almost all of our listeners. He's best known for doing all the art for V for Vendetta. Ah, okay. We'll get into the art a bit when we get into it. Is there anything else we want to touch on before we get started? Well, this will come up throughout the, uh, the issues that we're covering here, but... Because this did come out so much later than where it's placed in the trade paperbacks, there's some ambiguity about when it actually takes place. Oh, sure, yeah. I'm wondering if it's meant to take place right here, sort of in the immediate aftermath of the Nurgle storyline. Right. Or if it's meant to be sort of tucked between more recent, at the time, issues of Hellblazer. Doesn't really matter in the context of this story. Well, it sort of matters because of Constantine's mental state. Okay. Um, yeah, because this is this is a very uh, psychological story for him. Right. Without spoiling it too early, Constantine is sort of feeling like he can't feel anything. He's in a deep funk at this point. Yeah. But we'll get there when we get there. Should we talk about this cover? Yeah, so we have John in front of a cityscape. There's and a... he is being observed by the Court of Owls. <laughs> nice! That is a better joke than any joke that I had about it. Well, now, what were you going to say? With, uh, superimposed over the sky, we have a black woman's face uh, upswept in a way that it is not in the comic book, which makes it look like a bird. As you had so ably covered. And we open on... A snowy field and a mountain surrounding a city, which we are told is Fenton, Illinois. Now, we open on some grumpy narration here, which ends by addressing somebody directly. So how about you? You got the cold there, too? Now, I'm not really sure what's going on with that. There are points later on where I'm tempted to think of it as John's voice, but at this point he's never even heard of the person that is being addressed here. Well, the narration definitely sort of jumps back and forth from being John's narration about himself and directed at us mm -hmm. to a sort of angry Claremontian narrator <laughs> uh, <laughs> that is yelling at Angel, the young woman who is also the title character of this piece. Right, so during her scenes, the narration addresses her. It doesn't actually get into her head, tell us what she's thinking as she thinks it. Right. She remains inscrutable, for better or for worse. Yeah, I also wanted to uh, point out here, I've been 
playing the remastered Call of Duty okay. lately. And the way that it like sort of starts with what looks like a sort of map view of Benton, Illinois. I mean, maybe it's just so far away that it looks more like a map. But it zooms in onto the scene. That's reminiscent of the beginning of a Call of Duty level. <laughs> okay. Well, it's not a war zone quite yet. So we find a striking crew-cut black woman with haunting empty eyes sitting on a park bench, and she seems to fade into existence over a course of a couple of panels. Yeah. A football flies through the air and lands at her feet, and when it lands, there's a sort of shadow on the football that sort of makes the shape of Africa. Oh, nice catch. That's a device that we'll see again at the end of this story arc. Right. So the woman and the mailman watch the kids play football, and she says their blood will freeze soon. And as they play football, the kids are kind of mean to each other, shouting things like, Total destruction! Eat frozen death, asshole! Yeah, and to Angel it seems pretty clear that their snowball fight strikes her as being like a war. She appears distressed by it, and all of a sudden explosions start going off. Yeah, the mailman looks on in horror as the kids run into a minefield that wasn't there a second ago, and they're blown up. He momentarily flashes back to Vietnam as he says, This bad fucking evil can't happen here. I'm sorry, Clarence, but you're wrong. It happens everywhere. Listen, can't you hear the screaming? And there's our title, Antarctica. Yeah, it's a title that... Well, I mean, there's an obvious motif of cold that runs throughout this story, but... The title is never particularly explained. Yeah, there's a line a little bit later where John points out sort of how shockingly cold and sterile this must seem to somebody who came from Africa, the northern U.S. that he's exploring at the time. Mm. And it's, I think, even more thematically resonant that John himself feels cold and cut off from all other humans. Well, that's a fair point. So we get a pretty effective montage here introducing Constantine in a pub in London. Yeah, you can just hear these panels as the billiard balls are crackling off of each other and the drinks are poured. Yeah, ice clattering in the glass. So John's hanging out in the bar, and meanwhile you have some men playing pool. And there's this guy... I don't want to speculate on what his problem is. Well, yeah, at first it seems like he's almost something sort of supernatural. He's so ridiculously drawn that he looks like a cartoon character, in contrast to the realistic art of the faces all around him. And he's drawn in black and white, whereas the other people in the scene are in color, which is a device that we'll see again in the story. Yeah, anyway, he's lurking behind these guys, and he keeps going, boom! Yeah, and eventually, through doing this, he manages to start a fight with another patron. Now, something else has been going on beforehand, which is that this guy, pillar of tolerance that he is, calls John a queer, and John replies, 25 quid if you suck my dick. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought that that was good, how he expertly made this homophobic guy uncomfortable. Yeah, and then 
a woman sitting down from John at the bar takes him up on the offer. I'll do it for 15. So the homophobic guy and the weird cartoonish guy get into a tussle, and it almost seems like he was waiting for someone to start a fight with him, because the cartoonish guy suddenly becomes an expert at fighting, breaks his glass on the table, slashes the guy's throat with it, and runs out of the bar. Right. I want to point out here, just as a stage-setting thing, that these are double-length issues, so there's about 100 pages of comic here, but stuff tends to happen in a very distributed way. We're going to be moving through it pretty fast. Stuff tends to take several pages to happen. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a fair point. So everybody in the bar is really cynical about the fact that somebody has just had their throat slashed. The bartender says that everyone should leave if they don't want to give the police a statement. <laughs> yeah, and he refers to the police as the filth, which is a slang term I found kind of amusing. Incidentally, it's a slang term for the police that later became the name of a Vertigo comic in its own right. The uh, filth? Yeah, written by Grant Morrison. And it's about police? Well, no, not exactly. Oh, okay. Right. I also like that a little blood gets into uh, Constantine's gin and tonic. And he snorts and calls it a pink gin. Now, if I remember correctly, a real-life pink gin is not much better than that as, okay. a, as a drink. I don't remember what the ingredients are. It's basically room-temperature gin and some kind of bitters, I think, added to make to make it take on a pinkish hue. But the main thing is that ah, the rest of... We should have made ourselves podcast juice <laughs> for this episode. Well, the main thing about it is that the recipe calls for room-temperature gin. Mm. Gin without ice, which is just a really bad idea. <laughs> I, I say this as a lover of gin. You, you don't want to drink it warm. Okay. I want to point out here, too, that the ambulance was going to take 40 minutes as the guy is bleeding out on the floor of the bar. Now, John basically wants to stay, but the woman insists, and they leave together. All right, darling. You don't have to beg. I'm yours, okay? And as they leave, they are tracking bloody footprints in the snow. So, did she seem to you like another patented John Constantine male fantasy woman? The way that hmm. she sort of throws herself at him? Well, not in this case, because there's a good explanation for it. Go on. Well, she's not joking about the $15 thing. I mean, I don't know if that's an accurate number, but she is a prostitute. Right. She establishes here that she has a day job, but... She does expect to be paid for the sex that they'll presumably be having. She says that she does it for what she calls pin money. Did you find out what that is? No, did you? I was about to. Okay. Ah, it means a small sum of money for spending on inessentials. Well, fair enough. So they get to this woman's apartment, and there's a really prominent crucifix in the hallway, which is an interesting contrast. Yeah, I sort of saw that as, like, letting you know that you're in a John Constantine comic. <laughs> Why do you say that? Well, just, you know, religious symbolism being a, a recurring motif. Okay. And it turns out that she's not just a prostitute, but a dominatrix to boot. And she ties up John and whips him, 
but we have a sequence here on the right side of this page repeatedly showing his face totally bored. Right, she can't get any reaction out of him until she stops. He suddenly yells at her to do it harder. I still can't fucking feel it. She says, I can't. It's like, like, flogging a dead horse. Told you so. He gets dressed and throws down the money and is about to leave. She says, stay with me. Don't be bloody stupid. And he walks off again, tracking blood into the snow. And as he walks through the street, he noir narrates about Antarctica. Messy, vicious, pointless. So what? Who gives a shit? We're all walking on our own. We're all anesthetized in Antarctica, stumbling around this frozen ghost world waiting for something to happen, not caring when it does. He comes around a corner and suddenly is face to face with a huge billboard of the black woman we saw in Fenton, Illinois. And it really does a number on him. Yeah, it seems like there's a bomb blast that he sort of experiences. Okay, so the first time I read this, I thought that he was just having an extreme reaction to seeing her face, which is, I don't know, maybe because he's a magic person, the magic hits him harder than it's hit everyone else who's seen this billboard. Fair enough. So now I've noticed that there's this scene of two dogs fighting, and it looks like he just walked into that, and he like is afraid of the dogs. But then this bomb goes off. And we know from what the police say a moment later that there was literally a bomb blast. Presumably triggered by angels somehow. Right. The whole thing happened very fast. Remember when I said that things tend to happen rather slowly? This one happened really fast, and it was kind of unclear what had happened. Yeah, definitely. But we have, thankfully, we've already seen her trigger bomb blasts or explosions once, so that gives us some clue. And I want to point out here that as he sees the face and as he is caught up in her spell, he says, Hello? I love you? Won't you tell me your name? Quoting the Doris song. Right. So here we get really into really thick Constantine narration. Characteristic. He has this vision of himself and the woman together freezing to death, wind blown until their flesh is stripped to the bone. And he delivers some truly purple prose. A subliminal flash of cold fired Damascene light freeze dries me and suspends me in breathless polar isolation. Outside the cold armor of my tomb, a vicious white wind flails a shrieking world with ropes of ice diamonds. <laughs> so I'm not sure, but I think Damascene means sharp, because Damascus steel used to be very good steel in the ancient world. Sounds about right. So he is suddenly awakened by some cops and EMTs. He says the magic's done a number on him, which gives us another clue. Yeah, I like this bit as he compares his interest in this dark magic to a new drug. He takes off without giving the police a statement. They say, you have to wait for a special branch. And he says, I am special branch, <laughs> which I was amused by. <laughs> yeah, and he says, I, I've got to run. I don't want the suspect to get away or something like that. He uh, goes home and gets some sleep, but he's still dreaming about the woman and about various horrors, which he notes is his first nightmare since the cold set in. Yeah, now this was another bit that made me wonder where we were in Constantine's timeline, because right after Nurgle, one of his pressing problems becomes the, the bad dreams that he's had since Newcastle. Right, the last issue that we read was Hellblazer 13, which was entirely Constantine being stuck in a really awful dream. 
Yeah, and sometime not long after that, Morpheus cures his bad dreams in the pages of Sandman issue 3. Yeah. Right, as thanks for his efforts in helping Morpheus to find his bag of sand. Yep, that's what happened. So John starts tracking down the source of the photo, which is a photojournalist named Phil Jamieson. He finds this guy at his office, and he's actually on his way out to photograph horrors in another country. Right, he mentions that the photograph that he took of Angel was war journalism, but it's been edited out of its original context and is now being used for some kind of fashion ad campaign. Yeah, I like that line. For some creepy famine-chic fashion ad. Which, I, I certainly hope that that's not something that happens in the real world. That's really, that's pretty that's really awful. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's totally inappropriate. I wonder if the reason that it's supposed to have happened here is that Angel's appearance is preternaturally striking. Yeah. Jamieson is an interesting contradiction, too, in that he takes photos of war zones, but he doesn't seem particularly affected by it. But he does say that he always gets drunk to fly into a war zone. Yeah, I wonder if it's not so much that he feels empathy, just just fear, perhaps. Maybe, yeah. I also thought, something I caught here is part of the way that he tracked down Jamieson is he walks into, what is it, the agency that he works for? And gets his information off the computer while they wait for security to come throw him out. <laughs> yeah. And that was interesting to me. I was like, oh, uh, Constantine can use a computer now, can he? <laughs> <laughs> so maybe it's a little later in the timeline. Yeah, well, it certainly reflects that it was written a little later. Yeah. Yeah. And I just noticed on this page that they are actually painting over the angel picture on that billboard. So... John demands to know where the picture was taken, and Jamieson doesn't know that, but he does know that the girl didn't die. She was adopted by American missionaries. And he leaves, but he lets John stay and rifle his files for the information. Just slam the door when you leave. Thanks, mate. Good luck. Now armed with the information, John walks the streets doing some more noir narration. I like the line, nothing fucks you up better than magic. It's just like coming home. Okay, that's the bit that I that I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. where he, he does explicitly say that some magic happened to him, which kind of helps us out in tracking the plot. Yeah, that's right. John is uniquely among the victims able to detect that it was magic, and that explains why he's going to such trouble to find the source of the photo. This is also the page, I think, where he mentions that he eats a bacon sarni. Yeah? Yeah, do you, do you know what that is? Not really. So it's sort of like a, like picture something closer to Canadian bacon than what we would imagine as bacon. Right. Like, like sort of a, sort of a ham. Mm -hmm. It's like a hot ham sandwich. It's a distinctly British sandwich. Ah, okay. And, okay. and a distinctly British slang term for it. Yeah, and we encountered Constantine's poor dietary habits in previous issues, particularly in the Sandman issue. I think he had two cheeseburgers for breakfast. Well, yeah, in this he mentions it's the first food besides alcohol and nicotine that he's had in days. He waxes about how detached he's been, and he thinks that it was lucky something came and hit him upside the head and got his attention, got him feeling sentimental again. Next thing, he's planning Christmas in Minnesota. Which I think he means literally. It's Christmas time, and he is flying to Minnesota. Yeah, and is he buying a new coat here? 
like a winter top coat. Oh yeah, yeah, he definitely is. He's been walking around in a in a windbreaker. Which, what the hell is Constantine doing in that? <laughs> right. He had a coat in the bomb blast, oddly enough. So maybe it was destroyed. Oh, could be. In this panel, it looks like his new trench coat is pure white, but I don't think that's going to stay. Yeah, thematic. So he arrives in Minnesota. He's still having severe nightmares and seeing the woman everywhere. Christ, this is definitely going to be killer cure. Yeah, during his sort of, his dream reverie on the plane, he talks about following the bloody footprints. And he says, greedily, I prospect occasional blood rubies from the trail. And I just, like, I had to write that down. <laughs> such a such a gloriously purple line. Is this the part where he says, like, they took they took a girl from Africa and brought her to Minnesota in the winter? Well, they're Christians, I expect they meant well. Yeah, exactly. He sees the house of the missionaries, and it's white and snow-capped, and he's just noticing the culture shock there. Or temperature shock. <laughs> yeah. He interviews the woman who adopted the girl. I don't think we get her name. But she claims the girl is dead. And this is where we first get her name, Angel. Yeah, and uh, she tells John that Angel is some kind of evil parasite. She says Angel was lovely, but she sort of sucked you dry. And she tells the story that their other daughter, Kathy, got anorexia and... Her husband, Ray, got it in his head that Angel had done that. Right. Specifically, he's the one who called her an, an evil parasite. Yeah. So trying to do something about it, he strangled Angel, sank her body in the river, and then hanged himself. And Kathy died anyway. She's not dead. I ought to know. I was holding her hand in the hospital when she went. Not Kathy. I don't care about her. I don't believe Angel's dead. Nice, Constantine. <laughs> He's uh, single-minded at the moment. Well, I want to point out here that Ray describes Angel as a cuckoo in the nest. Yes. A cuckoo being a bird that will infiltrate other birds' nests, toss out their eggs, and place its own. I see. So Constantine doesn't believe that Angel's dead. He asked if they ever dragged up a body from the river, and the woman tells him no. He steals a bit of Angel's hair from a scrapbook, and then slips out just as the woman has decided that she'd rather have the company. Right, so he consistently dealt with her in a fairly cold manner. Yeah, he was being a fucking dick <laughs> in that scene. Yeah, I mean, you could think of it as being hurried, but it reinforces the theme that he's not making human connections right now. So he says that he needs a shortcut, and he, in his hotel room with a bottle of liquor, scries on Angel. Yeah, he talks about how when you're doing magic, you've got to stay cool, keep your wits about you, always be ready to snatch victory from the ashes of disaster. And it seems like that's more or less what happens. Even though this spell fucks him up pretty badly, it also gives him a location where to, to look for Angel next. Right, he gets blasted with mental images of horror, and his map catches fire, but the little scrap of it that remains unburnt shows Fenton, Illinois. So now we find Angel hitching a ride on a truck, and as she does, the narration is talking directly to her. Your burning pain is a constant thing, fierce and enduring, like your cold desire to share it with anyone you meet. Yeah, and so that 
sort of establishes pretty textually, pretty directly, that Angel is doing this on purpose. It's not like a side effect just of, you know, something that was done to her. Well, she may be a wrathful shade, but she's not just the embodiment of this pain. She's choosing to do this. Right. So she gets a ride from a trucker named Joe, and as they stop for a train, somehow the train is now full of screaming people being carried to ethnic cleansing. Yeah, we also get some background on Joe, just enough to let us know that he's totally fucked. (laughs) (laughs) He's got the Claremont backstory. Right. Yeah. And I didn't take it as his truck being full of... uh, No, 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 not his truck. The train that they stopped for. Right, yeah. It's the train that they stopped for, you see. And this is actually a, a pretty effectively scary image. The hands reaching out from the train as it goes by. Yeah, this is a pretty harrowing scene. And Joe tries to brush it off as something less horrifying. Must have been deportees or death row cons, murderers, rapists, gangbangers, terrorists. There were children with them. Now they arrive at a truck stop, and when Joe tries to call home, he learns that his wife and kids have been taken. Yeah, some kind of re-education program. Right, so Angel has spread this horror that happens in some parts of the world to Joe directly. Sometime later, Constantine is piecing through old headlines. Yeah, so now he's in Fenton, Illinois, and the papers are just full of horrors because the issue was written by Jamie Delano. (laughs) City playground closed after minefield massacre of children. It's the eyes that tell me this is the one as he sees the picture of the mailman. So John goes to the mailman's address, but learns from a neighbor or a landlord or a wife that the mailman has been in a sorry state since the incident. I guess he must have forgot, since he's seen them kids get killed, Clarence ain't been so together, you know? Did he go to his job? No, he's on sick leave, keeps getting nightmares and flashbacks to the war. Damn FBI didn't help none. Kept questioning him about the defense plant next to where it happened. On and on. Really got to Clarence. Sat brooding for days, then just upped and walked out about an hour ago. I also want to point out in this scene that John pays the kid on the stoop uh, to watch his car when he clearly walked to the apartment building. Yeah, that was pretty funny. It was sort of a comeback because the kid said, fuck you, Whitey, right, when he asked if he had the right address. It's also worth noting, now that I think of it, they keep talking about Clarence. Angel used Clarence's name in the opening scene without him ever introducing himself. Yeah, that's right. If she had spent any time in Fenton, it wouldn't be crazy to think that she knew the mailman. But it seems like she just has an ability to know people. And that's reinforced by the narration in the Joe scene a moment ago. The narration talks about who Joe is. He's an American. He minds his own business, works for his pay. Right? That's, like, information that she's obtaining about Joe somehow. Right. And she knows that he doesn't care about politics, and so she sort of effectively makes him think about politics. Right. Well, Constantine intuits where he will find Clarence. He goes to the defense plant where the incident happened. And, yeah, there's a certain ironic logic to the idea of deadly weapons suddenly appearing in the backyard of a defense plant. Yeah. 
the death that they manufacture suddenly occurring immediately outside the plant instead of worlds away. Angel, this child, woman, thing that I'm following, has a vicious sense of irony. Her jokes are cruel. She inflicts them at random like some kind of terrorist. So there, John implies the name of the series, a terrorist who inflicts horrors, a horrorist. Yeah, and we'll come back to that later. Constantine arrives too late to do anything but watch as Clarence immolates himself. And the flame carries over onto the cover of Horrorist number two. Yeah, which shows John flame behind him looking into the camera where he is framed by the long hand of Angel. Once again, this cover is by David Lloyd, the same artist who is doing the interior art for these issues. So we open on Angel walking a railroad trestle, which I guess is illegal because this cop finds her and brings her in. And he's pretty apologetic about the whole thing, tries to make sure that she's warm enough in the squad car. Yeah, I want to point out, I was already thinking by the time we got to this point in the comic that I didn't like the way that Angel was sort of being treated as exotic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and oh, yeah. the narration here in the first panel actually uses the word exotic, which is like... <laughs> A stranger, both alien threat and exotic promise. Yeah, it's just... Like, so on the nose of what's wrong with this portrayal. Mm. So Angel gets arrested. And there's an interesting series of panels here. As the officer talks about how locked down he's got to be in order to be a good cop, we get a couple of close-ups on his guns. Yeah, sort of linking his weaponry with his masculine mystique a bit. Yeah, and he also, uh, we also get panels of close-up on Angel's body. That yeah, the implies cop, he's sort of looking at her lecherously. Yeah, the cop seems to be distracted by her body. And he gets out and drags her out of the car. It seems like he's going to rape her. I couldn't really tell what was going on in this couple of pages. He says, it's not my fault, and then something happens as he... Uh, leaves her buried in a snowdrift. Oh, I see. It's not him that's buried in the snow. Right, he's sitting, seeming shell-shocked a ways away. Is there another bomb blast here? I see, like, see a panel that looks like an explosion, and then it looks like there's smoke in the air. I thought that was merely meant to imply violence, as he either kills her or rapes her or both. I want to point out, I feel like it would be very easy to write this series so that all Angel's victims seemed like they had it coming in some way, and we sympathize with Angel or we vicariously enjoy her rampage. It seems instead like she inflicts horrors on people in a way that makes them responsible, but it originates from her. Yeah, well, I mean, her, her first victims are, are just kids having a snowball fight. Right. You know, and the fact that, like, it's a sort of simulated war game certainly doesn't isn't in any way proportionate to the to the fate that they get because of that. Yeah, now now we get conversation a moment later in the comic saying that an incident like this would be totally out of character for the sheriff. And now that basically doesn't imply that he couldn't have raped somebody, but it does seem to suggest that some change has come over him. And as well, we saw in the scene that he was trying to be nice to Angel and then suddenly became distracted by her body. Hmm. 
Well, it, it seems like the crime that Angel and sort of by extension Jamie Delano are most interested in here is apathy. Yeah, definitely. It's not that people are it's not that people are guilty of the horrors the same horrors that Angel saw back, you know, in the conflicted third world country that she came from. It's that they're guilty of ignoring them. Yeah, and I want to point out that I think it makes it much more complicated to not just have her run into ugly people who do ugly things on their own provocation all the time. See, I didn't read it as being that complicated. I just sort of read it as, like, Jamie Delano's uh, misplaced (laughs) self-righteousness. And the scene that we're coming up on pretty soon here of the obese woman really underlines that. But we'll get there in a minute. I think it it sort of emphasizes Angel's point that ignoring evil makes you complicit in it, that she is encountering people who are not innately evil. Right. And and, and again, I'm not not, uh, trying to defend the action he took. It just read to me like he was under a mystical influence when he took it. Yeah, as was Clarence. It is strongly implied when he killed himself. Right. So the sheriff goes back to his car and weeps, shouting no, and meanwhile, John is pursuing Angel by train. Yeah, and he is sharing a train with an obese woman and her child, her little shit of a kid. (laughs) He says here, 24 hours on a train with a brick shithouse Nazi conductor who wants to shoot me because he smelled tobacco smoke after I went to the bog which effectively calls back to the train scene from last issue, while also being John exaggerating about an employee doing their job. Yeah, and he says he's stuck facing some simple female flesh mountain and her psychically damaged kid, who are convinced I'm a serial killer because I've got a British accent. So John's being a bit of a judgmental dick. Yeah, I was pretty unhappy with him calling her a female flesh mountain. That's not cool at all. And, frankly, the comic's being a bit of a judgmental dick, but we'll see that as we go on. Right. The comic book's treatment of this woman is, like, absurdly self-righteous. Right. We find her on this scene. She and, and her kid are crammed into, basically, two seats that are too small for her. And he complains that she's crushing him. Yeah, and she says, I can't help it. Darn train's swaying so much. And quit blaspheming. So, yeah, they pass by a truck accident? That must be Joe. Yeah, right. So Joe apparently committed suicide by putting his truck on the tracks, is my read on the situation. And when he sees that wreckage, John knows that he's on the trail. Yeah, that's right. And he gets kicked off the train for smoking in Texas. And even though it's Texas, the weather does not seem to have improved from when he was in Illinois. Right. Now, the mother and her son have also gotten off at this stop, and the mother is confident that the person they're meeting will show up, and with money, and the kid keeps pointing out that this is dumb. Yeah, I didn't really follow what that was all about. I like John's line. Vicious little brat, though. Probably turn out to be a writer, or some other kind of psychopath. A little self-deprecating humor there. Yeah. Now, John witnesses someone being taken away by the police, and this is the sheriff from the previous scene. We learn that he killed his wife, two kids, and their dog, and turned himself in. Ugh. 
uh, just seeing more of Angel's victims? Well, yeah, and that the form that his, like, supposed guilt takes is that he kills his family. It's like, if you feel guilty, you're killing the wrong people, <laughs> dude. So that just seemed unnecessarily horrid to you? Well, I mean, it's, it's the horrorist. <laughs> it's horrible. So Constantine gets himself a tiny motel room. Yeah, he meets Jorge, the, uh, the hotel manager, who is quite friendly and offers him a room right away. Right, and he thinks to himself, I mean, I've made the effort, gone more than halfway to meet her. Now she'll have to come to me. Yeah, and I sort of thought, like, will she, though? Like, she's pursuing her so tenaciously in the first issue of this series. And roughly from this point on, he just sort of waits for her to come to him. Yeah. And I'm wondering, like, as far as the comic book presents it, he doesn't have any real rational reason to believe that she will. Obviously, he's getting close uh, on her trail, and that's fine. But that doesn't mean that she's going to suddenly turn around and, you know, become the pursuer. Yeah, it's as though they're connected in some way, or as though they're both, like, just such powerful people that they sense each other at a distance that they're drawn to each other. Could be. In terms of Constantine as a mystical detective, it's not very good detective work. But it ends up working. Spoiler warning. Well, yeah, I, I mean, it's definitely not out of character for Constantine to do, <laughs> to do some hanging around and call that detective work. Right. <laughs> some hanging around and just sort of waiting. So Angel wakes up in the snowdrift, feeling something different this time, the narration says. She looks out over the town in Texas, thinking, or the narration says, You hesitate, detained by an unfamiliar nervous anticipation. But it's a town, no different from all the rest, a place where people live. You should go ahead, visit them, pass over them, grace them with your presence. So now we cut to a new character. This is a coroner who has just examined the bodies of the sheriff's family. And again, he stresses how unlike the sheriff this crime was. If someone like him can do an insane thing like this, then so can anyone. And Angel quickly finds the coroner standing in his headlights, like Dr. Destiny. <laughs> he swerves and misses her, and he yells at her basically for being a public hazard yells that he's got children waiting at home. Are they happy? Is it warm in your house? Do they have plenty of good things to eat? Do you love them? So he goes home. This is the part where I have absolutely no idea what's going on. <laughs> okay, so the coroner goes home, and as he does, he's narrating to his dead wife, it seems like. And it sounds like his wife and an older daughter who was taking care of her have both died. Now, there's a scene here of him, or somebody, sitting on the side of a bed, and we then see him sitting in a car, so he obviously hasn't arrived home. So I'm guessing this is a flashback, remembering his wife's death. Okay. Now, when he gets home, and we have a kid here grinning as he says, Waste them ugly aliens as he watches TV, which again struck me as a very Delano moment. It's like... Well, yeah, it's... It's part of the same sort of, like, self-righteous impulse towards violence and culture that we saw in the snowball fight scene. Yeah, I guess I didn't read this as self-righteous so much as just, like, society, particularly London society, as portrayed in Hellblazer, is always kind of gritty and nasty. 
Okay, but these characters, these examples are both Americans. Well, I know, I know, but he does tend to portray our current culture as well. Maybe 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 that's in keeping with what you're saying. But he does tend to portray our current culture as like very selfish and nasty and enamored with violence. Mm-hmm. But I guess I thought of it more as a like you're reading a horror comic because you want to feel nasty thing than a judgment thing. Yeah, well... In any case, the weird thing as he comes in and meets his kids is that there's no food in the house and they're both starving. Right. They had groceries delivered just a couple days ago. I mean, just yesterday. They had groceries delivered just yesterday. And so basically what he does about it is that he grabs his teenage daughter, drives her to the strip club, and sells her. Yeah, that whole part is really creepy. I mean, just, how do I put this? Way too realistic, you know? Okay. It's not like a fantastical horror. It's like a very domestic horror of this kind of creepy father-daughter interaction. Yeah, although I kind of thought, I guess he's under Angel's influence, but what strip club actually accepts daughters? Yeah, the whole world is sort of changed in the image of the the horrors that she's inducing. Yeah, and I guess the government was rounding people up a while back with Joe, so right. So she is obviously able to influence things. She's a she's a reality warper. Yeah, and also just the father and son both shift from being fairly well fed and and healthy over the course of about three pages to being deathly thin. Yeah. So. Angel shows up at the motel and meets Jorge. And knowing that she doesn't have a green card, he offers her $1.50 an hour and nothing for the first week. You can sleep in the laundry room, take it or leave it. Yeah, I notice here that she addresses him in Spanish. Oh, yeah. That's pretty strange. Yeah, so she's got a job at the motel now. And Constantine wakes in a cold sweat as he senses her near... I can practically smell her. I'm hungry. My stomach feels like a clenched fist, but I can't risk missing her by going out for food. Jesus, this is pathetic. Stop shaking, man. Calm down. Watch some TV. Get a grip on good old crass reality again. And when he watches some TV, he discovers on the evening news that Phil Jamieson has put his eyes out after witnessing one too many horrors. Yeah, and it's sort of like, why is this happening now? After years of covering horrible things. I mean, I guess one possibility... It doesn't seem like Angel's Rampage has been going on terribly long. But I guess it began with Ray and Kathy, which was years ago. Yeah, there's a whole kind of question of why this is happening now. Angel is not new to the world or to the country. So it's hard to say what the uh, provoking incident is of this whole line of events. So it's your assumption that Angel's power actually reached out and got Phil Jamieson? Yeah. Okay, well maybe it touched him again because Constantine brought it up to him again. I suppose that's possible. She crossed paths with him, if if not literally, then metaphorically. And Constantine says, If that's what you do to a harmless sap like Phil, I reckon I'm in for a real bloody treat. Time to stop dancing around now, Angel. Let's get down to it. Okay, so this brings us to the scene at the steakhouse. Right, now the steakhouse is also the motel. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, Jorge runs them both. Angel works as a waitress in the restaurant and a maid at the hotel. I see. 
So the mom and her kid walk into the restaurant, and the mom orders big steaks for both of them, even though the kid doesn't like steak and they can't really afford it. Yeah, she seems confident that whoever they're waiting for, a part that's not really ever adequately explained, is going to pick up the bill. And the comic is really not cool with the fact that she's fat. Yeah, exactly. The fact that she has ordered dinner in a restaurant is (laughs) apparently a crime so severe that she deserves to have, like, all the pain of all the starving people in the world forced onto her. Well, to be fair, Angel overreacts to everybody, and she also pushes sins on people and then punishes them for it. True. The kid is actually complaining. The kid's name is Artie. I don't think we ever get the mom's name. The kid is complaining that she's eating so much, and she says, Why do you have to do it, Artie? Why do you have to spoil everything? You even make me guilty for eating when you know it's a comfort and it don't hurt no one else. But the waitress is Angel, and she senses what the narration describes as her blind, resentful preoccupation with herself, and seemingly blasts the woman with images of all the starvation in the world. Yep. And again, this is, this is not an impartial narrator. This is the sort of angry narrator voice. Right. That's addressing Angel directly and sort of representing her thought process even though it's in the second person. Yeah. Yeah, now, this starvation fantasy ends with people butchering people to have something to eat, and then the kid says he has to go to the can, and Angel says she'll show him where it is. But as soon as he takes her hand, they're running through back alleys trying to get away from the butchers. (laughs) But there are no bathrooms where you take him. (laughs) (laughs) That was uh, a little Or maybe these guys aren't butchers now, because it says that they're basically hunting down the homeless kids because they hurt the tourist trade. And they capture Angel and Artie and shoot them. Yeah, and seemingly one of the guys in a ski mask... Is that Jorge? Yeah, Jorge wakes up on his couch wearing the ski mask from the dream. Yeah, and he's got a pistol, too. Which I don't know if he really had or if that's a manifestation of the dream as well. Yeah, and he wonders aloud, Could I do that? Hunt children on the streets? Kill them with a gun? Only you can know that, Jorge. And so Jorge shoots himself. Yeah, and it mildly distracts Constantine. And Constantine's being a bit dramatic here. He hears the gunshot and cuts himself shaving, and he narrates... The gunshot jerks my reflexes. Makes me nearly cut me bloody throat. But he's using a safety razor. Yeah. Come on, John. (laughs) So he finishes shaving, he turns around, and Angel is standing there. Yeah. The art on this page is pretty good. Their eventual confrontation. Yeah, and he hears the vacuum cleaner as she's apparently come into his room as the maid. But then we get a full page of the meeting. And even though Angel is supposed to look like a young teenage girl, she's looming over Constantine in this shot. Right. So, Angel, what now? We gonna fight or fuck? Constantine says. And I wrote in my notes, oh, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's only because this is Hellblazer that the answer is fuck. That is, I guess, his smart-ass response to being surprised in his towel. In any case, she asks menacingly if he can hear the screaming. And he says... Of course I fucking can. Used to be louder, but you get used to it, don't you? You learn to tune it out. 
These days, it's like a mild tinnitus, a distant ringing in the ears. No big deal at all. Don't have to try harder than that, Angel. Yeah, he goes on to say that he's spent his whole life living in this nightmare. I'm immune to the horrors. They're like cheap pornography. They don't do it for me anymore. So, yeah, Constantine can't feel anything. Yeah, and he's referencing here his thrill-seeking need for horror and violence in his life, which has come up a number of times in the series. Yeah, the association of horror as either as either drug or sex in Constantine's life is a metaphor that we get a lot. Yeah, and part of the problem here is that he has no drive to help people anymore. Right. He's seeking the thrill, but he's not finding himself caring about the victims. Angel comments that most people are afraid of pain. They want the bad stuff to happen far away, out of sight. But John says that he needs an edge. Fear is the fuel that drives the human engine, isn't it? It's what keeps us ugly, selfish scumbags going. Without fear, we don't know we're alive. But maybe you wouldn't understand that, Angel. You're not one of us. No, not one of you. All of you. John says, Spare us the universal victim messiah shtick. I've been following you, remember? I've seen the roadkill you've left splattered along the way. Admit it. You just get off fucking people up. I exist. I move through the world and share my experience with anyone I meet. Big of you. I let them know what they do to others, even by neglect. They do, ultimately, to themselves. Yeah, yeah, leave it out, Angel. I know what you are. You're a bleeding horrorist, a redistributor of suffering, perpetrating revolutionary outrage in the cozy heartlands of oppression and complacency. But that's cool. There are worse things you could be. You could be a cold, dead-veined old hell junkie like me, a burned-out tourist voyeur. You should let the world touch you. Be a part of it. I've tried, goddammit, but it always hurts so fucking much. Only to begin with. Anyway, isn't that what you want? Show me. And then they fuck. Yeah, there's a couple of metaphors that go on here. The encounter is like a mortar attack. We also have a page of them peeling their skin off, which is one we've seen before in the pages of Hellblazer. Uh, that's right. In issue number seven, I believe, he imagined himself stripping Zed down to her skin during a... down to her bones during a romantic encounter. So, basically, all of the horrors of the world are flowing into John, but somehow, maybe because he's so jaded, he's able to survive. And he sort of draws all that pain out of Angel, depriving her of her power. Yeah, this is a sequence of several pages which contains some stuff I'm not really in a hurry to talk about. But the upshot of it is that at the end, Angel seems to be dead, and Constantine seems to be in touch with the world again. Christ, that was fucking better out than in. He looks over and sees that Angel has died, and he says, Some things never change, huh? Still with kiss of death, Constantine. But at least now it hurts again. Ah, Constantine. A person has died, and once again, you're making it all about you. Well, once again, he's managed to defeat evil by having sex with whoever was available. <laughs> the hotel looks bombed out. Yeah, this is weird. He thanks her for saving his soul, and draws a sheet over her body, and walks out. And yeah, the hotel seems to have blown up. The people in it are scattered, stunned around. Yeah, and he says to her dead body, hope it was good for you, too, which is just so fucking gross. Ugh. I missed that part. 
But he runs into the mother, who is now looking for her son. The obese woman from the train. And he almost brushes her off, but then he turns and takes her hand and says, Trouble shared is a trouble halved, or some old bollocks like that. Let's go look for him together. And the final shot, the sheet covering Angel's body, the blood has now formed into a map of the world, and a pair of bloody footprints lead away. Ugh. <laughs> so we have to talk about that. Uh, you hated it. Yeah, I, I really thought that... I mean, okay, I'll start with the positive. The art in these two issues is very good. David Lloyd is a master. And the sort of visual metaphors and the strange situations that Angel brings into being result in some truly scary moments. Mm -hmm. And again, they're rendered so well that there are some really striking images in this comic. But generally... The story is just some of the worst, most tone-deaf politics that I've ever seen. Go on. It's sort of this guilty, bleeding heart stuff that implies that we're guilty for all the troubles of the world because we eat food in restaurants and watch violence on television, you know? So you saw it as indicting the decadence of Western culture? Well, I saw it as doing that in a completely non-constructive way. It's sort of accusing of American apathy, but it has such contempt for these caricatures of American life that any kind of reasonable message is lost. And at the same time, it's like it's lacking any genuine empathy for people who aren't part of Western society as well, for people from like war zones and that kind of thing, by implying that merely by witnessing those sorts of horrors that Angel has become a killer and a problem that has to be destroyed. Mm -hmm. And so we end up with this exotically beautiful woman who is the agent of reprisal for the entire third world, who, of course, eventually gets dealt with by Constantine having sex with her. Right, so she's treated as exotic, she's treated as an object of sexual desire, and she's treated as utterly irrational. And she's treated also, she's treated as an other, and as nothing more than the place where she comes from. Right, yeah, that's, that's a good way of putting it. So, so yeah, the politics in this story arc are just, I think, sort of irredeemable in the way that they're too damning of Western society and too ignorant, in a way, of the experiences of people from other cultures. Okay. All right. Fair enough. I wonder to what extent this was intended as an activist comic, and particularly I was struck by the final image, the bloody map of the world. It definitely feels like a call to action, but at the same time, I'm kind of wondering if, if this issue's attitude toward global suffering is that we all ought to do something about it, or that it's awesome fuel for a horror story. Well, yeah, I see it as sort of a complacent cynicism, you know? It's like, oh, Western civilization allows all these, all these horrors to take place, 
sometimes because of our intervention and sometimes because of our complacency and our apathy. But there is no real call to action besides, like, you know, don't eat in restaurants, I guess. <laughs> so, okay, so what really struck you in that sense, I guess, is that the people that Angel encounters are living their own lives in a way that they, they have it better than people who are suffering, but they're not doing anything that comes off as aggressively uncaring. Yeah, I, I just think that there's a, I think, like I said, there's a lazy cynicism to it, where by sort of indicting everyone and having seemingly contempt for everyone, Jamie Delano manages to to avoid pointing out in any kind of coherent way a political way forward, despite mm, okay. the obvious political intensity of his feelings. Right, right. And as well, the people, the missionaries who had been making an effort to help are swept up in the we're all terrible <laughs> as well. Yeah, there's a joke about them taking a, a kid from Africa and moving them to Minnesota and how that's an unintentionally cruel thing to do. The photojournalist who takes pictures of war zones to keep Americans informed about what's going on also. So so I, I sort of see what you mean, that there's no there's no way forward and there's no there's no distinction between anyone who's trying and, and anyone who's part of the problem. Yeah. I mean, I, I've praised Jamie Delano before during our coverage of Hellblazer for when he sort of calls for compassion and empathy and calls people out on, like, tribal thinking, like us-them yeah, mentalities. Yeah. But I just don't see any of that compassion on display in this story arc. Yeah, I, I think there's definitely... Like you said, an intensity to his feelings, especially where he shows sort of horrors visited upon complacent Americans. At the same time, you know, in the context of a horror comic, horror is kind of badass, and it maybe shouldn't be that way. Some of the horror scenes are definitely very effective. At the same time, the comic calls out, you know, famine chic and the art of beautiful photos of suffering people, and is also guilty of that because Angel is a figure of fascination and ultimately a sexual fantasy fulfilled. Yeah, and that part of it, the sexual aspect of it is really disturbing as well. Yeah. I mean, I don't get the impression, it seems like you had the impression that this book is sort of reveling in horror, like it's badass. And I, I never really saw this as being overly, like, I think they're certainly trying to create art more than entertainment. Okay. You know? So they have that to their credit. It's not just, like, oh, you know, hideous, horrible things are fucking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, that is, that is the line that you always sort of have to walk with, uh, with an entertainment production. And I would say that I'm ambiguous as to whether they ended up on the right side of that line. Yeah. Well, in all, I found this a really problematic and unfun read. Yeah, it's definitely a hard read. I mean, just to kind of, like, look look over Jamie Delano's run with this character, it's been very hit and miss. And at the times when it misses, it's often because of things like this. But at the same time, I do think that his political engagement is something that earned him fans at the time and, and made people think of the run as a significant piece of comics. 
Yeah, like I said before, I have also praised his political outspokenness. But there are some issues. This one, his issue about the Vietnam War comes yeah. to mind, where it's just, it's like a sort of misguided activism. Okay. That it only condemns without, without mm. seeming to see a way forward, and without really realistically considering the people involved. All right. Well, join us three weeks from now when we'll be back into John Constantine Hellblazer. But first, in one week, we will return to Preacher with the conclusion of the Masada story arc. That's right. We've got action, humor, a big rescue, and justice for all. If you like our show, be sure to check out our website at vertiguys.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got lots more episodes plus show notes on every episode. We would love to hear from you. If you have questions, comments, or just want to chat about comics, you can reach out to us at vertiguys on Twitter or vertiguys at gmail.com. If you could leave us a rating or a review on iTunes, hopefully you're subscribing. That stuff's all very helpful in helping new fans to find the show. And as always, thank you for listening. Thanks, everybody.